Heavenly Father, we invite you to take that peek. Lord, you see the nooks and the crannies and the recesses of each and every person within the sound of my voice. Lord, you know the joy, but you also know the heartache. Lord, you know the anticipation, but you also know the fear. Lord, you know that person who desperately wants to trust you, but they don't. Lord, I pray that you would speak to hearts this evening. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to them as this world unfolds and as the plan of God unfolds and as the purposes of of God unfold, that, Lord, you would begin to reveal to them their place in this grand, challenging thing called life. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would prepare our hearts and that you would speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Daniel chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, it says, At that time, Mishael, or Michael, shall stand up the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, every one who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro And knowledge shall increase. Haven't you ever wondered what it would be like to have a clock? A clock that reveals the unfolding of all things human in the future. Imagine you had a clock, one of those kinds from the outer limits that has a 24-hour dial. You know, you have two, it can go around twice. And you go, okay, if, if we start the clock ticking with Adam and we move forward to Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Saul and David and Solomon and you move forward through the judges past the judges to the time of the kings, past the time of the kings to the Babylonian and Assyrian captivity and the the time of Daniel. And you keep moving forward to the Maccabean revolt, the life, the birth, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, the first century, the second century, all the way to the 21st century and wonder how close are we to the end time? Is it nine o'clock in the evening on the prophetic clock? Is it 1030? Is it 11.30? Is it a quarter till midnight? God's final plan for the human race is included in this final chapter. And if we were to sum up God's final plan for the human race 
in two words, it would be resurrection and reward. That's easy enough to remember, isn't it? The culmination of all things human will manifest itself in a final resurrection and a reward. Over the course of human history, God has revealed His plans to the servants and to the prophets, recorded those plans in Bible history. And from time to time, we see the plan unfold in vast, sweeping floods of truth. But sometimes they come one drop at a time. Now, like I said, the book of Revelation serves as perhaps the best commentary on the events that are going to unfold in chapter 12. Most certainly you should take special care and read the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation. What will be the fate of the believer? What will be the fate of the unbeliever? What happens when the Antichrist appears? The tribulation period unfolds. Jesus Christ returns in glory. The message of the angel to Daniel has been a rather depressing message. In chapter 10 and chapter 11, we've seen wars and rumors of wars. We've seen endless struggles and we've seen the promise of genocidal circumstances for the Jews. In the last chapter, chapter 11, verses 36 through 45, it provided a description of the closing days of what the Bible refers to as the time of the Gentiles and then the opening of what the Scriptures refer to as the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist world ruler, the world religion, the false prophet, World government, the, the world becomes fragmented. An ultimate war is fought, which ushers in the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah. In spite of satanic support, the world coalition will collapse. The destruction of the world ruler and the false prophet take place. Additional details are added in chapter 12. For those of you who, like me, are chronologically oriented, you want to know this, what's next in this chapter and that chapter. But unfortunately, the Bible doesn't do that for us. It's more like a montage as it layers events on top of each other. But we want things to have a beginning, a middle, and an end so that we can follow along. So I'm going to try to provide that for you, at least in part. At the close of history, we will see, number one, a world ruler. Number two, a world religion. Number three, a world war. Number four, a time of unprecedented tribulation for Israel. Number five, deliverance of the people of God. Number six, a judgment, excuse me, a resurrection and a judgment. And number seven, a reward for the righteous and a punishment for the wicked. And so in these opening verses, these opening verses describe four groups of people who are mentioned. The first group of people, those people whose names are listed in what is called the book of life in verse 1. Those who sleep in the dust of the ground in verse 2. Those who have insight. In the Hebrew it's called Mishkalim. 
and those who lead many to righteousness at the end of of verse 3. After describing these groups and then recording their destinies, the angelic messenger instructs Daniel to conceal the prophecy and seal up the book of Daniel. And that's frustrating. Because when something is sealed and closed, what do you want? I want you to open it. I want to know what's inside. What can we glean? Well, at the, end, at the beginning of verse 4, he says, conceal the prophecy, seal it, and read again in verse 4, until the time of the end. When is that time? The writers of the New Testament documents indicate the end began with the birth, the life, the ministry of Jesus, his death, his resurrection. And in the New Testament, we come to the time known as the end times. That's what it says in Acts chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. Remember, God spoke in times past through the prophets, but He has in these last days spoken to us by His own dear Son. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. James chapter 5, verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Over and over again, the repeated, repetitious statement that's made throughout the New Testament is the time of the end is at hand. Look at verse 1 again. At that time, Mishael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. By the way, at that time ties chapter 11 to chapter 12. For those of you who have just joined us and you're unfamiliar with chapter 12, there was a series of revelations and prophecies that were given as the the world and the history, if you will, the future of the Jew is unfolded. What time? We saw that there would be a time that God has a plan and a purpose that the Jew is restored to the land at that time. And now all of a sudden, Daniel fast forwards into human history and we see the collapse of human history. And I believe in part that that time isn't simply the connector between chapter 11 and chapter 12. That time refers to what has come to be known in our popular culture as the ultimate battle. The final battle. The battle of Armageddon. And it says, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Even to that time. Is it talking about all nations? Or a specific nation? 
Is it talking about in every age or is it talking about a specific age? Is it talking about the nation of Israel as it was manifested, if you will, during the time of David and Solomon going forward to the time of the regrouping of the nation and the Maccabean revolt and then the dispersal of the nation? What is Daniel talking about? The time has been called the time of Jacob's sorrow, the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation. The scriptures give us a horrific insight into this period of time. As a matter of fact, the prophet Zechariah, the, the, the Jews have, have prophets, the, the, the Nevaim and the Ketubim, and Zechariah writes, I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half the city shall go into captivity. That's what it says in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 2. During the Assyrian captivity, half the city didn't go into captivity. In the Babylonian captivity, half of the city didn't go into captivity. All of the city went into captivity. When the Romans came and destroyed the city, half of the city didn't go into captivity. All of the city went into captivity. So what is he making reference to? That's to be a future time. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 5 says, We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. The prophet Jeremiah writes, Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with a child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor and all faces have turned pale? Alas, for the day is great so that none is like it. And this is the time of Jacob's trouble. When is that time? Think of Jewish history just for a moment. The Jews and the Jewish people have been a history of constant persecution. Think back to the time of Esther when Haman sought to slaughter the Jews and annihilate them. Antiochus IV, the Great, who killed a hundred thousand Jews in less than three and a half years. Think of the time of Herod. Fast forward to the time of Titus in Vespasian, where by some estimates more than a million Jews are slaughtered. Then go to the time of Hadrian during the time of the Bar Kokhba revolt, where according to some estimates as many as 400 more thousand Jews were killed. Fast forward into the 20th century and watch as Hitler isolates the Jew, forces them into pogroms, embarks on what he calls the final solution. In the end, by even the most conservative estimates, killing six million Jews. And if you want a tiny, tiny, visceral taste of what that looks like, if you ever have an opportunity, visit the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., or even better yet, come with me to Israel as we visit Yad Vashem and you see crates of human hair and children's shoes piled high as you begin to enter into the enormity of the catastrophe that took place. Daniel envisions a time as un believable as this may seem even worse than that. Jesus describes it in apocalyptic terms. 
he says it's like nothing ever seen before on the planet Earth. The book of Revelation offers gruesome details in chapters 6 to 19 at that time. And what will the time be like? A catastrophic time. A time of worldwide famine, worldwide plague, worldwide disease, worldwide demonic manifestations, worldwide death. The world will see wholesale collapse of every vestige of civilization and even nature, the sun, the moon, the planets, the stars will create such a celestial confluence that some scholars believe that the planet Earth will literally flip on its rotation and the North Pole will become the South Pole and the South Pole will become the North Pole and there will be a catastrophic movement of the plate tectonics on the surface of the globe. One-third of the earth and one-third of the sea are scorched beyond recognition. Hell breaks loose. We're talking about a global catastrophe of unimaginable proportions. You know, if you go to Los Angeles at the headquarters of the Jewish Defense League, they used to hand out buttons, the JDL, the Jewish Defense League. They had a button that read, never again. But the new Holocaust will come. John Phillips writes, and I quote, think of the suffering of the Jewish people. Egyptian pharaohs have tried to exterminate them. Assyrian kings, Babylonian emperors, Persian potentates have turned their hands against them. Xerxes ordered their total extinction from the realms. Greek tyrants, Roman Caesars, neighboring princes, church officials, Spanish inquisitors, Roman popes, medieval kings, swashbuckling czars and commissars, one and all have persecuted this people. The dungeon and the sword... The thumbscrew and the rack, flaming fire, concentration camps, gas chambers, starvation, torture, sadistic experiments in the name of science, all that fallen men and raging demons could devise have been used against this people. This tribulation, this tribulation, the worst. Of all. If you read passages, you'll begin to understand that the truth, the devil will fail. The devil will fail. The Antichrist will fail. All attempts to exterminate the Jews fully, finally, completely will fail. Do you want to know why a remnant will survive? Because God has a plan. You do understand that you will survive until the moment that the plan of God has been fully executed in your life. For the Jewish people, an angel will see to it. His name Mishael, 
we say Michael. His name, Mish, is the Hebrew word, who is like, and El is God. So Mishael means, who is like God? It, it can also be translated in the image or the likeness of God. And, and Michael apparently has been given the task of defending and delivering the Jews. And if you're a Jewish person, you might say, he doesn't seem to have done such a good job. But the truth is, he will preserve, he will protect, particularly during this time of distress. And it will be unspeakable. Michael is God's super angel. He is assigned this supernatural protection. He is their national guardian angel. And I've got to tell you something. Satan has a certain amount of authority. He has a certain amount of control over the planet. He is referred to in the Bible as the prince of the power of the air. In John's gospel, he's called the God of this. In first John, he's called the God of this world. Michael has this unique responsibility to preserve, protect. To watch out for Israel. And Satan hates and opposes the people of God. Scud rockets launch threats, nuclear threats from the Pakistanis, nuclear threats from Iran. Whatever kinds of threats are launched will be completely checked. Look. Look not for support from the United States of America. Don't look to the European Union for support. Don't look to the countries of Africa or the Eastern Bloc. Look for supernatural support. Michael is the field marshal of heaven's hosts and, and the armies of heaven. He is awesome in his power. But guess what? He is simply an instrument in the hand of the more awesome power. The true and the living God. Satan hates the nation and he'll do everything to persecute it. God loves the nation and he will do everything to protect it. This is why the hatred of the Jew defies rational explanation. There is a supernatural element. And from time to time, that hatred peaks and erupts and manifests itself in Jewish genocide. But Michael, we are told, in the end of days, this angel at the end of time will in the most amazing fashion provide a supernatural support. And by the way, this time period is well attested to in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 24 verse 21. Mark chapter 13 verse 19. Revelation chapter 7 makes it clear that there is a host of Gentile converts as people all over the world hear from what seems unthinkable right now, Jewish evangelists. The Bible speaks of 144,000 Jewish witnesses who will sort of be like a combination between Billy Graham and, gosh, who else? I'm trying to think of a super evangelist, if you will. John the Baptist. Imagine 
Billy Graham meets John the Baptist. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Only Billy Graham doing Jewish evangelism. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But it's going to have a supernatural component. An element, if you will, that is going to be amazing. And the world responds. And the 144,000 witnesses will also eventually suffer martyrdom. Also, the period coincides with the outpouring of God's wrath on the nations. The prophet, the Old Testament prophet Zephaniah, in chapter 3, verse 8, the prophet says, My, this is the Lord, the Lord God speaks through the prophet Zephaniah, saying, Thus says the Lord, My determination is to gather the nations, to pour on them my indignation, even all my fierce anger, for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. That's not good. For the world. That's strong language, isn't it? This kind of strong language is, there is a God who judges rightly and justly. And this just and righteous God will exact the specific requirements that are going to be necessary for each and every nation. Here's the point. That the tribulation is Jewish in focus and Gentile on the periphery. And both the Old and the New Testaments have this very strange indicator that the purpose is to sift the Jewish people. Now, even though that might sound odd on the surface, you'll remember that Yeshua, the Lord Jesus, says to his own disciple Peter, do you remember? There came a point in his ministry where, and I've said this to you guys over and over again, remember he goes to Peter and he says, Peter, yes, Satan's asked for you to sift you like wheat. And you remember my response. You said no, right? No, he doesn't say no. What he does is, When the sifting process is complete, minister to your brothers and sisters. And there's a sifting process that takes place for the Jewish people. But make no mistake about it. The sifting process isn't restricted to the Jewish people. It also has a very real application in your life. Because God will take you through a series of trials and processes as He begins to uncover the layers that are on the surface of your soul. The dig begins on the inside of your heart and God begins to speak to you. John Phillips writes, and I quote, The Jewish rejection of Christ must be broken so that the remnant of the nation will be ready to accept the returning Yeshua as Messiah and Savior and Lord, unquote. Some scholars place the Holocaust of the tribulation after the expulsion in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 7. You'll remember Satan is expelled by Michael and his angels. 
this is important for you. If in the future Michael the archangel expels Satan from heaven, guess where he is right now? He's in heaven. Does he come to the earth from time to time? Seeking whom he may devour? I think that the answer is yes. But there will come a time when he is kicked out of heaven. And ladies and gentlemen, he will not be a happy camper. And he will come to the planet with animosity and rage. And whatever prohibitions or restrictions that kept him in check will be removed. And Satan, for a season, will be able to do the unimaginable. Antichrist and the false prophet will be tools in his hands. The prophecy assures the people of God that at some point God will be vindicated and the enemies of God will be punished. And remember, as Daniel receives this note from the angelic being, all of a sudden hope begins to well up inside of the heart that there is a real God and He is going to uplift righteousness. He is going to reward righteousness and He is going to punish the wicked. And it will... Most likely be Michael, I think, who locks Satan into what's known as the grand abuso, that abyss, when the millennial kingdom rolls along. In any event, God will see to it that the tribulation serves its purpose. Apostate Jew and apostate Gentile will perish. But enough of Daniel's people will survive to form a ruling nucleus in a restored kingdom. And by the way, if you read passages like Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 34 through 38, Ezekiel chapter 22, verses 18 through 22, you'll note that only one third of the people are spared. As a matter of fact, if you read Zechariah chapter 13, verse 8, it says this, and it shall come to pass. Remember, this is the Old Testament prophet. Zechariah says, and it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one third shall be left in it. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 9, I will bring the one third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. The sifting process will unfold and a remnant will remain. And according to Daniel, everyone who is found written in the book. And you're wondering, hey, you know, it's 2009. Doesn't God have a Mac? Doesn't he have like electronic devices? I mean, books are so old fashioned. Oh, trust me. You may think you have sophisticated ways to record information. God has some pretty amazing ways to record information. Everyone who is found written in the book. What is this book? 
The clue is given to us in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. You might want to take a peek over there. It's easy to find because it's the last book in your Bible. Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. The, the Apostle John has a vision. Look what he says. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. The books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. By the way, this book contains the name of every single human being who has ever trusted the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his promises and his Messiah. The angel tells Daniel that every Jew who places his or her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will experience the preserving power of God in the tribulation period and will experience a supernatural deliverance. That's the first verse. Now we go to verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life. Some to shame. And everlasting contempt. You know, this is one of the rare mentions of the resurrection in the Old Testament. Daniel discloses a secret, a secret that would later be rejected by the Sadducees. Many of you who are familiar with the New Testament, you'll remember that there were two groups of Jewish people who were at odds with one another, the Sadducees and the Parashim, or the Pharisees. And what was the big dispute that they had? Is there a resurrection? You'll remember one of the most famous stories in all of the New Testament is in, in the midst of this argument, as they're arguing over whether or not there's a resurrection, the Lord Jesus basically says, haven't you read in the law that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Is God a God of the living or a God of the dead? What's the right answer? He's the God of the living. That means Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive. And so, a resurrection takes place at the end of the tribulation period. Believers are resurrected to everlasting life. And the unbeliever is, look what it says, some to shame and everlasting con contempt. This hint of a resurrection also appears in the book of Job, chapter 19, verse 26, where Job cries out and declares that he will see the living God in his flesh. But this whole issue of the resurrection was blurry and sketchy and vague and mysterious. Resurrection? Resurrection? What does this mean? Resurrection? It could be that this is what Mary and Martha had in mind when Jesus comes to them and says, Your brother will live again. Yes, Lord, I understand. Job chapter 19, verse 26. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. I understand that my brother will come back to life at the end of time. We didn't really understand. We had absolutely zero idea what a resurrection would look like until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back 
to life. Some have speculated that this refers to a specific and a partial resurrection of the Jewish people prior to the millennia. Some have supposed that it refers to Israel's resurrection as a nation at the end of time. Some scholars have suggested maybe this means, remember when Daniel is writing this book, it's the 5th century B.C., it means that somehow, some way, beyond all imagination, the nation of Israel will come back to life. And then it does. And then it does again. Some have seen the expression sleep in the dust as symbolic of Israel's national degradation. But I think it makes more sense to just take the the verse at its face value. It means what it says. In this case, it's a reminder to Daniel that death, listen carefully, that death does not terminate existence. That there is something beyond the veil of death. The resurrection will be shared by all. And look what it says. Some will be raised for everlasting life and others for everlasting contempt. And there's a hint that's given to us in the Gospel of John, chapter 5. If you want to turn there real quick, it'll, I'll make it worth your while. In John, chapter 5, in beginning in verse 25, it says, Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in and of himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in and of himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Remember, that's the title from Daniel. Do not marvel at this. That means... Don't let this blow your mind. It's hard not. It's hard to obey that one, huh? No, as my friend Raul Reese would all up. It's too late, man. It blows my mind. He says, "Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life." Those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And so, the resurrection will be shared by all. This is an important thing every time you stand next to a grave. Every time you stand next to a grave, it should enter into your mind. Is this person going to come back to life? The Bible says yes. Well, what if they're not a believer? They're still going to come back to life. What if they're a believer? They're definitely coming back to life. Believer and unbeliever have this in common. Both come back to life. That's what it says in Acts chapter 24, verse 15, verse Corinthians 15, 23, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 6, Revelation chapter 20, verses 5 through 6. But they will be raised some to receive an eternal reward some an eternal punishment. And this bothers people. Some people have a huge problem with that. What? Everlasting punishment? 
By the way, the word everlasting contempt in the Hebrew here, it means throwing away. It means casting away. It means thrusting aside. The great Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis in his unimaginably, unimaginably difficult book, The Problem of Pain, when he was processing the death of his lovely wife, he wrote, Though our Lord often speaks of hell as a sentence and inflicted by a tribunal, he also says elsewhere that the judgment consists in the very fact that men prefer darkness to light. And that not he, but his word judges men. We are therefore at liberty, since the two conceptions in the long run mean the same thing, to think of this bad man's perdition not as a sentence imposed on him, but as the mere fact of being what he is. The characteristic of lost souls is their rejection of everything that is not simply themselves. Our imaginary egoist has tried to turn everything he meets into a province or appendage of the self. The taste for the other, that is, the very capacity for enjoying good is quenched in him, except insofar as his body still draws him into some rudimentary contact with an outer world. Death removes this last contact. He has his wish to live wholly in the self and to make the best of what he finds there. And what he finds there is hell. Walberg writes, What is presented here is that those who have died will be raised from the dead to join those living in a period of restoration. Israelites who survived the tribulation are the objects of divine deliverance as prophesied in Romans chapter 11, verse 26. This will occur after the great tribulation, at the second coming of the Messiah. Actually, there is no passage in Scripture which teaches that Old Testament saints will be raised at the time that the church is raptured, that is, before the final tribulation, and now we finally come to verse 3. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. It's an idiomatic expression. The phrase in the Hebrew, those who are wise, is the Hebrew expression mashkalim. It's been also translated those who have insight. It's basically inviting the reader to listen carefully, to think carefully, to embrace insight in what is being said. By the way, the Mashkalim tells us that many will be saved during the tribulation. Like I said, 144,000 Jewish evangelists reap this enormous harvest. 
the, these preachers are saved and sealed by God. They're kept from the vengeful hands of the Antichrist until all is fulfilled. Here is the idea. These Jewish witnesses, these Jewish evangelists, these Jewish witnesses and evangelists who testify to the reality of the true and the living God turn many to righteousness in spite of the wickedness of the age, in spite of the wrath of the beast, in spite of the false prophecies by the false prophet. And by the way, sun and stars are often symbolically used in the scripture to represent those who are in a position of leadership or authority. And so I suspect that that's probably what it means here. And in verse four, look what it says. But you, you, Daniel, shut up the words, seal the book till the time of the end. And then this mysterious statement is made in, in the prophecy. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. We're back with the original question. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. How long? How long until the time of the end? How long until the book is opened? In Revelation, John was told not to seal up his visions because the time of fulfillment was at hand. Daniel's prophecy dealt with things in the remote, in the distant future, so that the meaning will be obscure until the time of the end. The idea is that the book itself, now listen carefully to what the prophet is saying. The book itself Will survive. When did Daniel write these words? 5th century BC. Again, no matter which calendar you happen to be using. How long has this book survived? It's marched through the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. It survived the Bar Kokhba revolution. It survived the Holocaust. It survived the 20th century. It survived the liberal scholars. It survived. It survived. It survived. It survived. You know what? People hate this book. But it continues to survive. Minimum even if we don't understand anything else about the passage, minimum, Daniel is making the remarkable statement that this book will somehow find its way to the final moment of human history. The devil and his God, the godless liberals who debunk the book, deny the book, it still survives. And it says, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. What does this mean? Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. This may mean the understanding of, of this Hebrew text and this Hebrew book. It may mean the understanding of the book. 
it may mean just simply the increase of knowledge. It's my understanding that it's been said that knowledge doubles every ten years. Do you realize I have now officially forgotten more than I currently know? How is such a thing possible? I think I've entered into a point. Now, I want you to think about something else, though. You're familiar with Solomon, who was the king of Israel. And most of you are familiar with Washington, George Washington. He was the first president of the United States. Do you know what Solomon and George Washington had in common? They both traveled by horse. They both had couriers. They both had couriers either by foot or by horse. From the time of Solomon till the time of George Washington, the means of transportation didn't fundamentally change. But now we travel at the speed of sound. We can communicate at the speed of light. We have a knowledge and a transportation explosion. But I'm going to suggest something to you. That that may not be the primary meaning of this passage. The expression, by the way, is found in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 1, and Amos chapter 8, verse 12, when it says, Many shall run to and fro in the Old Testament economy and in the Hebrew prophecies and the Hebrew prophets. In the Hebrew language, this literally means movement. It means literal movement. As a matter of fact, Zechariah uses it to describe the Lord's scanning of the entire globe. Remember in Zechariah, the prophet in chapter 4, verse 10, the Ze Zechariah, remember the prophet says, the Lord, Lord's eyes move to and fro throughout the earth. Same expression. One rendering reads, many shall search it through and through. And the knowledge will be increased. And if that's a valid translation, then the prophecy implies that in the end, when the time comes for the fulfillment of the Scripture, people will scrutinize the Scripture. They will compare Scripture with Scripture. The idea being they're moving throughout the Bible, looking at all of the texts to arrive at an accurate and expanded understanding of what the prophecy is saying. Another view is to and fro can also perhaps mean to apostatize. There are technical reasons advanced for substituting one Hebrew word, shut, which is to rove, to turn around, to despise, hence to, to apostatize with a similar word. It's shoot and shoot. Now, in the Hebrew language, the S sound and the sh sound are very similar. The suit means to swerve or to turn aside or to apostatize. It's used that way in Psalm 101 and 3. One edition of the Septuagint, which is the Hebrew translation into the Greek language, reads, Till many shall have gone stark, raving, mad. Now, if that's what it means... Well, let me just put it to you this way. If we combine the meanings, 
the end times becomes a place of rapid travel, a proliferation of technology, a world where apostasy abounds, a world where psychology and psychiatry and drugs become the solution to the painful circumstances of what looks like a hopeless life. I'll leave it to you to decide whether or not that describes the world in which we're living in. Whatever else the passage means, I want to just draw some quick application for each and every one of you. Whatever else the passage means, it seems to mean that man honors the famous and soon forgets them, but God honors the unknown and never forgets them. God knows who his people are. There are two kinds of people, those who want to be known in this world and and those who want to be known by God. By the way, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, it says, God is not unjust so as to forget your work and love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. The idea being, even though no one else sees what you're doing, God sees. He knows about your love and your concern for one another. We may never have an HBO special made about our lives. Pray that God never makes an HBO special of my life. We may never stand under the spotlight or receive the applause of human beings. We may not be remembered for a very long time. But yet God will reward you in what matters most. His grace, His faithfulness, and our response to His grace, and our response to His faithfulness. Man gives his rewards now, but God saves his rewards until later. And so the real question isn't simply when will all of this end? The real question is when will all this end for you? And do you want a perishable reward here and now? Or do you want an imperishable reward later? You see, man's methods are connected with time. But God's are connected with eternity. And sometimes our vision and our perspective is limited by time and it's limited by sin and it's limited by circumstances. It's limited by culture. It's limited by self-centeredness. But the Lord sees all things clearly. The past, the present, the future. And he's carefully planning his way. And he's carefully planning your ways. We've got just a tiny bit further to go, and then we're going to end the book of Daniel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing book. Lord, you reveal 
to whom you desire to reveal. And you conceal from those who you desire not to know. Lord, you made it a point that we could ask. You said, ask, seek, knock. Ask and it will be opened to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Lord, we're invited not simply to ask questions, but to look for answers. And to see if these things are true. And Lord, what a remarkable book. What a remarkable book that here we are with the book open, reading the passages well beyond Daniel. Well beyond Jesus. Well beyond Napoleon. Well beyond Hitler. The book is still alive. The book is still read. The book is still searched to see what we can discover about your plan. Your plan. The final plan for the human race. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's.